Good afternoon, Dr. Dan Guerra here. This is the 15th of January, 2022. And I'm coming, of course, from the inland Pacific Northwest of the beautiful USA. Now, I've noticed I've done quite a number of avirulence, uh, 30-minute lectures. And so I was considering doing a dialectical event ontology of that topic and realize the only way to do it appropriately is on video. And I will do that. And now I'm thinking for all of the mini cluster of lectures and all the regulatory systems or regulatory uh, molecules that I'm going to be covering. Uh, and again, we're still on the letter A. I think what I'll do is I will do one one hour video lecture as a synopsis for each of these topics. And I'll put that off until later in the winter when I have more time to set up to do the videos and then I'll just bang them out, maybe put two or three or four out at the same time. So if that's okay with you, and I'm not hearing anything <laughs> that uh, disagrees with me because, um, well, I don't hear voices and I'm pretty sure my audience cannot connect with me while I'm recording, uh, at least not now. I'm just gonna proceed with that um, with that prospect. So we're going to try to finish. This was a long way of saying uh, in prolegomena that this is me trying to finish a virulence today. So we'll see what happens. It might actually be two lectures because I've got a lot of really cool material because finally I'm getting to the lipids, right? Yep. Because the lipids are always the most important and the most interesting of every topic you ever do in biochemistry. All right, so again, this is going to be slightly off-label from just a virulence because I'm going to tell you about periodontal disease and dihydroceramides, okay? Now, you listened, of course, to my lipid lectures. I gave quite a uh, hosted and nested set of lipid biochemistry canonical lectures last summer when I was in the middle of the uh, the aging um arc. And I'm going to do that again. I'm going to do, I'm going to come back and do carbohydrates, nucleic acids and lipids. Uh, and yes, amino acids and proteins and polypeptides and all that, uh, because I like to do that periodically uh, on this um, podcast. But for right now, I'm going to assume that when I talk about ceramides, you know that these are uh, a component of the sphingolipid class of membrane lipids and signaling lipids in humans, but they also, of course, occur in bacteria and in a lot of eukaryotes as well. So, but most sphingolipid metabolism that I talked about in my lecture series here and also at university have been discussing sphingolipids in human central nervous system and in neurotransmission. But I, now you're going to learn, if you didn't already know, and I know I brought it up in lecture, but can assume everybody was at my lectures, that bacteria also produce sphingolipids. All right, so Porphyromonas gingivalis will synthesize several classes of a lipid known as dihydroceramide. And at least one of those promotes pro-inflammatory secretory reactions in gingival fibroblasts, as well as altering the fibroblast morphology. And this is, of course, in cell culture. So the purpose of the study that I'm going to kind of run through pretty quickly here was to determine whether the dihydroceramide lipids of Porphyromonas gingivalis, which again is a periodontal pathogen in the oral cavity in humans, uh, 
was indeed dehydroceramide. And if that dehydroceramide can be recovered from lipid extracts from subgingival plaque or maybe diseased teeth or, in fact, even diseased gingival tissue. Okay. So once you get what you think might be a virulence factor, like a dehydroceramide, you have to isolate it from the tissues that are going through the pathogenic response. <clears throat> so you have phosphoglycerol dihydroceramide lipids, and you have phosphatidylethanolamine lipids, right? So these are two different subclasses, but they have that sphingosine base. Remember, the sphingosine base is is synthesized de novo by the reaction of palmitoyl oil CoA and the L-serine. And that's the, the product of that is the sphingosine base. Okay. And then from that, you can add fatty acids of variable chain length and degree of unsaturation to that nitrogen atom, because remember you fused it with serine, right? To the nitrogen atom, so you're making abund-linked fatty acids, of course, associated with their carbonyl group. But you can also add polar head groups. And those polar head groups can include things like phosphonylcholine, phosphonylethanolamine, phosphonoserine. So that's what I mean by phosphatidylethanolamine lipids. And the dehydroceramide is basically just the sphingosine picking up one fatty acid as an amide linkage. So then that's how you make ceramide. Remember when we had talked about ceramide lipid wraps in uh, fusion with cholesterol, and those lipid wraps can move around membrane proteins from their synthesis in the ER or their transporting trans, cis-trans organized bulk movement from the Golgi apparatus to the plasma membrane. Remember those lipid wraps? And how ceramide played a role there in the other big um, feature that we uh, that we gave for ceramide, besides just being a regular membrane lipid, is that after sphingomyelinase activity, which then breaks down sphingomyelin to ceramide and phosphonylcholine, something I think I brought up just last lecture, ceramide is also a very potent agent for pro-apoptotic events. That is, it will cause apoptosis or programmed cell death. Okay, so ceramide can lead to the mitochondrial-based apoptotic pathway. But it also can uh, cause necrosis and ferritosis, uh, which, of course, is a different kind of cell death, right? It's the kind that invokes uh, um, a um, huge immune response. Okay. All right. So let's talk about some of these different pathways, right? So you've got palmitoyl-CoA and serine, as I said, and the enzyme that is involved there as, of course, serine palmitoyl transferase, and that makes 3-oxosphingonine, which then gets reduced with NADPH to sphingonine. Then you add that fatty acid to that nitrogen atom, and now you have dehydroceramide. Then there's an enzyme called dehydroceramide desaturase, and that's put the double bond, a trans double bond, into that 16-carbon fatty acid, which came from palmitoyl-CoA. Okay, that then generates ceramide. And then ceramide can uh, be used to synthesize sphingomyelin or glycosphingolipids. So with sphingomyelin, of course, you're adding phosphonylcholine. And with glycosphingolipids, there are various 
carbohydrates added. So those enzymes are called glucosylceramide synthases, right? All right. It's one way to make dehydroceramide. That's the de novo pathway. You can also take sphingomyelin, preform sphingomyelin, for example, as a myelin-coated axon in the central nervous system or in the periphery. And you can react sphingomyelin with, um, well, first of all, just with water. And that sphingomyelinase will produce ceramide. Okay. And ceramide plus fatty acid, right? And so once that fatty acid is lost, um, that would be the ceraminidase. So ceramide, you're losing the phosphonylcholine. So remember, sphingomyelin is the ceramide residue. Remember, with that double bond already in the palmitate, the trans double bond. And you're just removing phosphonylcholine. But that then ceramide immediately can react with the ceraminidase. Okay, and there's two different kinds of ceraminidase, the acidic and the alkali, and those are basically from acidic compartments. Uh, and that will that will remove then that N-linked fatty acid. Then you get back to sphingosine. Then there is a sphingosine 1-phosphate kinase, or just simply sphingosine kinase, and that will make sphingosine 1-phosphate. And then there is a lyase that can follow that reaction. Now, remember, sphingosine 1-phosphate, sphingosine, ceramide, and you could also phosphorylate ceramide to make ceramide uh, phosphate. All of those are signaling molecules that play roles such as sulfate that I just was talking about. In fact, sphingosine 1-phosphate counteracts ceramide phosphate. Ceramide phosphate can promote program cell death. Sphingosine 1-phosphate tends to cause either autophagy or even can lead into cell cycle cell division. Yeah. Anyway, when you have sphingosine 1-phosphate, there's one more enzyme called sphingosine 1-phosphate lyase that will make palmitoaldehyde and, of course, phosphoethanolamine. Okay, so that gives you a brief overview of the pathways we're talking about. So, in this particular paper, they extracted lipids from P. gingivalis. They looked at subgingival plaques, subgingival calculi. And they also looked at the teeth laden with gross accumulation of subgingival calculus and gingival tissue samples that were actually derived from chronic severe periodontitis sites. Then they did GC mass spec and they looked at the lipids. Okay, so that's how this paper was done. What they found is that P. gingivalis did have phosphorylated dehydroceramides. So that's not ceramide 1-phosphate. These are dehydroceramides that are phosphorylated. Okay, this is before the double bond. And so they found phosphorylated dehydroceramides from this bacterium that was associated with the oral cavity where there was periodontal disease. Okay. And again, where subgingival plaques, subgingival calculi, et cetera, and the teeth, right? But the distribution of the different phosphorylated dehydroceramides was unique. Okay, within those subclasses of those tissues. So what they found basically is that plaque, calculus, diseased teeth, gingival tissue, all contained, after GC mass back examination, various forms of phosphorylated dehydroceramides. And this, of course, was induced or caused by P. gingivalis. Okay. And so 
This was the first time, this was the 2006 paper I was just telling you about, actually, that ceramides, particularly dihydroceramides, were classed as virulence factors. Because okay? even in 2006, when this paper was published, it was known that ceramides are involved in program cell death. Okay? So now let's move up to a paper published uh, in 2018. This is an infection and immunity. Of course, it'll be in the show notes. And it tells us many, many things. And let me go through this as quickly as I can. First of all, you know that mammalian sphingolipids are really important in the membrane. And they form these membrane lipid wraps, usually with cholesterol, um, and that they traffic proteins, right? We already mentioned that. Now, this paper reminds you, because remember, most people that publish in journals that are involved in pathology, they're not lipid biochemists. So they're kind of like, you know, taking a dip into that side of biochemistry that they probably don't have a good background in. So they feel obliged when they publish their papers to tell you, well, this is what sphingolipids are. And they tell you, you know, what I just mentioned to you. They're found in membranes and they're in lipid uh, membrane wraps. But guess like 5% of the detail is sphingolipids. As you know, because you listen to me and I'm a lipid biochemist and I touch sphingolipids. Anyway, 2018, they remind you that you find sphingolipids in bacteria. And they say that bacteriodetes phylum and chlorobi phylum of bacteria produce sphingolipids. But it's only the bacteriodetes phylum that are reported to produce a certain kind of sphingolipid known as a serine dipeptide. Yeah. And in fact, they find that serine dipeptide in these oral bacteriodetes. And they also find out that that bacterial dipeptide sphingolipid becomes associated with human cells in cell culture. So it looks like the bacterial sphingolipids and their um, kind of byproduct, the serine uh, sphingolipids, seem to not only associate with human cells in culture, but they incorporate their lipid into the eukaryotic cell membrane. Now, you know, from our long discussions of membrane fusion and membrane fluidity, this has been going on for years in both my podcast, but of course, since I've been teaching biochemistry, which, yeah, it's been three decades, right? especially the lipid biochemistry course I first started teaching when I first became a professor, professor in the early 90s. I talked about various kinds of metabolic fates of membranes. And I talked about membrane fusion, right? Well, this is something perhaps of a new chapter for some of you, but bacteria can actually generate lipids and those lipids from the bacteria can fuse with host membrane, uh, read it as a human member, because we talk about the human periodontal diseases here. And we know what would happen when that occurs. The entire morphology of the membrane lipid and the membrane itself as a macromolecular structure is going to change. And it's going to change in fundamentally functional ways in terms of its entire ability to transduce signals, to carry out voltage-gated channels, moving calcium, uh, potassium, sodium, ATP, inorganic phosphate, but also the tra bulk transport of organic compounds. Yeah, 
such things as moving fatty acids into the cell or kicking lipids out of the cell. Or how about glycoproteins like, why not, cytokines and chemokines right? and growth factors and even matrix metalloproteases, all of which have to move out of the membrane. Imagine all of that activity, the pathology I tell you about moving back and forth from the membrane during an inflammatory response, all that, how that's going to be impacted by having a bacterial lipid basically fuse and melt into the eukaryotic membrane. Tremendous reorganization. So you can understand simply at that level that these oral bacteriodetes are going to have a tremendous effect on cell activity in the periodontal surface area and the oral cavity. And it's going to probably involve lipid raft components. Okay, So that's a really important message. So let's talk about periodontitis. Chronic periodontitis is manifested as a progressive loss of periodontal attachment and alveolar bone. And what that will lead to, according to dentists, is a pathological pocket formation around the tooth. Of course, if it's untreated, and many of us have probably experienced this, especially as we get older, you can lose a tooth. So chronic periodontitis affects well over 65 million of U.S. adults. That's almost 50% of us. And anybody over 30 years of old, 30 years old, is might have some level when you go to a dentist, if you don't have really, really excellent oral health, some form of chronic, maybe low level periodontitis. Okay? Now, that's bad, not only for the loss of the teeth and the corruption of the oral cavity, but whenever you get periodontitis, you can also get extra oral diseases, which can become major disorders and pathologies. What are they? Cardiovascular disease, excluding many cardiomyopathies, diabetes, preterm birth issues, but also Alzheimer's disease, rheumatoid arthritis, and indeed even some solid cancers, such as hepatocellular carcinoma and pancreatic cancer, pancreatic ductal carcinoma. So the keystone periodontal pathogen is this P. gingivalis, the one we've been talking about, the one I told you about the dehydroceramides. It was published way back in 2006, right? That's still a keystone periodontal pathogen. When I say keystone, you know, it's going to be part of this biofilm organization, right? This plaque, right? And I told you that P. gingivalis produces a, a host of virulence factors. And the major classes it produces, first of all, are lipopolysaccharide, the polysaccharide-rich capsule itself, which can have a lot of sialic acid, Pro, uh, um, structures called gingipanes, fimbriae, and an enzyme called peptidyl arginine deaminase. I talked about all these in past lectures, but it's okay if you haven't heard them. So P. gingivalis LPS is considered to be one of the most important lipids that are involved in bone destruction as associated with periodontitis. But this LPS is present only in minor amounts when you look for it in human chronic periodontal disease. So what does that tell you? Well, you use categorical logic. 
We know that there are virulence factors associated with this lipopolysaccharide. We know that lipopolysaccharide induces the immune response. But now we talked at Aussie about that. <clears throat> you know, it's a famous antigen, a favorite antigen for toll-like receptors for the innate immune response to be kicked in, right? Multiple cellular, cellular lineages. But when you go looking for LPS, you don't find very much of it, yet you can have a full-blown periodontitis. So that categorically, logically, would suggest that maybe it isn't the major factor involved in virulence there, right? At least you could argue that point. So what this paper tells us is something we know way back from 2006 paper. That's why I brought you forward from it. Remember, we're in authentic biochemistry here. We leave no stone unturned. Everything is leveled out here because <clears throat> I want you to know the details as well as the concepts. So pigeon-tibolus dihydroceramides, we're just going to call them DHCs now, and this other kind of subclass called serine dipeptide lipids, are indeed found in diseased gingival tissues. And indeed, we know that they generate an inflammatory response because we know it from the literature. What literature? I already told you an older paper. All right. Now, within the diseased periodontal crevice or the pocket, P. gingivalis works directly by contacting and attaching to the sulcular epithelial cell. And if you co-culture the bacteria P. gingivalis with these epithelial cells, you're going to you're going to discover an ultrastructural thickening of membranes because you're getting a fusion of the membranes from P. gingivalis lipid into the eukaryotic membrane. Okay, with the epithelial cell, that's what we're talking about here. So that cell membrane contact is probably delivering, no doubt, delivering bacterial lipids directly to the eukaryotic membrane mass, right? So there could be another mechanism for bacterial lipid entering the cells, and this may be involved in the biofilm turnover, which is also associated with periodontal disease. And I think you understand that from when we're talking about the endodontal disease on the last several lectures. So these P. gingivalis lipids are likely transferred to cells of gingival tissues, either by direct contact, that is surface-surface contact of lipids, or probably, and maybe just importantly, by some kind of biochemical diffusion. And this would be then linked with a diseased oral surface that already is contaminated with bacterial liquid. Okay, So kind of like a membrane raft motif rather than membrane-membrane fusion if you can consider it that way, right? And also maybe some bulk transport, even facilitated transport of bacterial lipid into the membrane, into the eukaryotic membrane lipid of the epithelial cell. So either one of those processes will, of course, lead to the deposition of the bacterial lipid in the membrane, in the eukaryotic membrane. And then that would generate within this cell the potential to mobilize more lipid rafts. And again, what that can do is invoke an entire migration of membrane proteins in and out of that really important contact point between the external and the internal milieu of the epithelial cell in association with the periodontal regions of the oral cavity. So what's that going to do? It's going to have a tremendous effect on the ability for an innate immune response 
or an acquired immune response later on to function appropriately. That's how you can get massive hyperinflammation, right? So in contrast to periodontal bacteria DDs diseases, there is a GI bacterioides disease. And you find this in certain kinds of colon uh, disorders, right? And we do know that colon type diseases like ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, does have a major etiologic association with bacterial sphingolipids. So it's likely that the two, the gut and the oral cavity, once again, have something in common, and that is the potential for bacterial pathogenesis after biofilm corruption. Okay. So this is coming back now, Joe, hopefully. Got to check my time here real quickly before we move on. Oh, yeah, we're doing fine. All right. Let's move on. So there is a model for phosphorylated dehydroceramide and serine dipeptide lipids. Uh, and basically, this is what it's like. So there's a certain serine dipeptide. It's kind of its parent lipid that you find recovered in the subgingival calculus and subgingival plaque. And what it does is it basically causes osteoclast formation, but it inhibits osteoblast differentiation and therefore function. And indeed, it's directly implicated in the dendritic cell. This is now going to be an innate cell involved in that inflammation infection court. It's implicated in dendritic cell release of a very potent prothrombin cytokine, <coughs> interleukin-6. Okay, so this is all again, porphyromonas gingivalis, many other kinds of subgingival organisms are going to be able to produce this alteration of the microbial biofilm, right? And a major player here seems to be these dehydroceramides and some of the byproducts of dehydroceramide metabolism after phospholipase activity. And these again are these dipeptide, um, phosphatidylethanolamine type lipids, okay? And again, I'll show you the structure when we do a synopsis and I do a video lecture. So you have phosphorylated hydroceramides, those are PDHCs, and they can be phosphatidylglycerol or phosphatidylethanolamine, depending on their parent structure before this uh, modification that occurs at the subgingival site, okay? But these are all very abundant lipids that you find in that subgingival calculus. And they're also recovered in the biofilm that is the subgingival plaque, which remember involves human epithelial cells as well as proteins and glycoproteins and whatnot. That's what we mean by plaque, right? Now, the phosphoglycerol DHC lipids promote also interleukin-1-beta-mediated prostaglandin biosynthesis. And this has been seen in isolated gingival fibroblasts, but also during cell fusion and during osteoclastogenesis with cell lineages from the oral cavity. Okay, So you get this entire feature of this. It's basically a progression of periodontitis by looking at these dehydroceramide lipids and their dipeptide analogs, right? And this is all at the tooth 
root surface. So this is a, a bona fide a periodontal disease location, right? So I've got more to say about these lipids. I'm about, eh, about halfway through this lecture. Yeah. And I'm going to stop here because I want to be able to complete this discussion because we're talking about lipids and lipids we have to be very, very precise about so you know the structure function relationships. So with that, I can see, and I already knew it at the beginning, that I'm going to have one more lecture. This is still under that parent topic of avirulence because we're going to come back around and talk about some of the potential for avirulent activation, even discussing these virulent dehydroceramide lipid structures, okay? As you might guess, metabolism of these and also the reception a toll-like receptor-mediated induction of a pro-inflammatory event. So, okay, finally, Dr. Dan Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry on this, the 15th of January, 2022, uh, giving you my sign-off as I always do. Bye for now.